Hey Life Canton, Roger here, Director of Student and Young Adult Ministries, and I'm so glad that you're with us today, whether you're a brand new listener or a returning one. Either one, we're in week uh, the the couple, last couple weeks of our series on The Code, which is all about who we are as a church and what we believe in. So uh, if you are a brand new listener, I want to remind you that you belong, which is one of our codes. Go ahead and give that a listen, uh, our, our week one of this series, if you want to hear more. But uh, you belong to God, so you belong to this community, and we want to get you plugged in. So be sure to fill out a Connect card. Uh, you can do that on our Church Center app, or you can head on over to our Life Church Canton forward slash connect page to fill that out also. Uh, be sure to like, subscribe, follow, so you can hear more of the messages and things we put out. But like I said... Pastor Jared is bringing us a message this week on our code, Driven by New Life, which is our primary motivator in this community. So give that a listen, and I'll catch up with you in just a minute. today? Good, good. I'm going to need a whole lot of group participation today, so it's okay if you want to get a little rowdy. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, We are counting down our codes. If you've been with us the whole time, way to go. We have counted down from you belong all the way to what we're going to be talking about today. I'm Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and if you're watching online, I'm glad that you're with us as well. You can't see this, but on our wall, we have our codes. We go from six, five, four, three, two, one, you belong, encounter Jesus, relentless pursuit of one more, whatever it takes, wherever it takes us, multiply. And then today, our number one code, there's a reason why we number them the way that they do. Number one code is driven by new life. We're going to talk about that in just a second. We're also going to talk about why it's our number one code. But I've got some questions for you. I need some group participation. Anybody in the room, tell the future. Can you tell the future? Not a lot of hands going up, uh, just in case you're wondering online. Uh, now, some of you have like hardcore, really gifted, prophetic gifting, and that's something we could talk about. And, and so uh, uh, on Wednesday, when we were going through the rehearsal, uh, Franz, who's on staff, he's got a prophetic gifting. And I go, can anyone tell the future? His hand immediately goes up. He's like, I, I, I can. <laughs> There's more I could say about that. That's for another message. But here's the thing about the future. It's filled with unknowns for those of us who can't tell the future. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what's happening next. We don't know what our football team is going to do or not. You know, like we have lots of unknowns. How do you feel, folks, about unknowns? Eh, not, not so great, right? There's, there's unknowns and that's scary. Let me ask you this. How do you feel, though, when somebody comes to you and gives you affirmation or maybe uh, gives you a certain assurance about your future. They say things like, you're going to be okay, right? You'll be okay. Or they say things like to students, hey, don't worry, you're going to pass the test. I know you didn't study, but you're going to pass the test. Or you will have your student loans paid off. Ooh, too soon? Too late? I'll just move on to the next one. Um, or how about uh, you will be okay on your driving test and uh, you're going you're gonna to pass it and that's going to be okay. Or maybe you will get a raise, I like that one. Anybody like that one? Yeah, that's, that, one's, that one's nice. Or maybe some more serious ones, like you're in a doctor's office. You, d- you get a diagnosis, but the doctor says you will be okay. We like these 
assurances, right? Because they're motivating. They motivate us to keep us going, to give us a little extra pep in our step, to give us some confidence for the future. Why do we need motivators? Because sometimes either our future is filled with unknowns, but sometimes our future, we know that we're going to have to do something hard. And that's going to make me a little afraid, a little uncomfortable. Or maybe the future is filled with an assurance that, you know what, it just sounds too good to be true. And so if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So we become a little skeptical. Yeah, I'm not sure that that could really happen. I don't know that that could happen for me. It never really turns out good for me. So we become skeptical and maybe even apathetic. We need motivators to keep us going because the future is unknown. Our number one code is driven by new life. It's a motivator. It keeps us going. We need new life. Driven by new life is a declaration of what motivates us and calls for a response. New life is all around. We just have to have eyes to see it. New life is what we need. Everything is hinging on new life. And there is new life that has happened, new life in our past. But more importantly, there is more new life to come. We need more new life. This is the most important one because it gives us hope in our hopelessness. Without the promise of new life, without the promise of hope, the only alternative is death. We need hope. Everything is riding on this code. We need this as a motivator. We've been looking at the prophet Isaiah, who is giving the people a vision for what is to come. And these last two verses that we're going to look at is a motivator. I want you to see it for yourself. And also, I want you to be thinking about the songs that we just sang at the beginning. See the trajectory of hope that we've been on in the songs that we've been singing. It all is intentional. It all ties together. But now, let's look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 12 to 13. You will live in joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, it's like a stingy little leafy plant. It it fools you. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and love. Does that sound like assurance, anybody? These will happen. Will, we get this seven times. This will take place. This is assurance. This is motivating. This is a driver toward new life. We get mountains and hills and trees. We get all of these images of new life. The people need this assurance. They need hope in their state of hopelessness. Why did they need this? Give you a little bit of context. We've talked about this already, but the original hearers of this vision are the people of God, the Israelites. And they are in Babylonian captivity, but they're about to come out of Babylonian captivity. They're in Babylon, uh, which is uh, what we know as present-day Iraq. That's not their homeland. Their homeland is Israel. They're wanting to go back. But what has happened now at the time of receiving this, uh, this vision from Isaiah is another empire has come in, Persia has come in to take over Babylon. And the king of Persia, his name is Cyrus, he says, hey, these uh, people of God, these monotheistic people, these uh, Israelites, you can go home. 
You can go. That's amazing news. That's really, really good news. We, we've been here for 70 years and now we can just, we can just go. This is, this is huge. And this is fulfillment of a promise that they had actually received 70 years earlier. I want to take us out of Isaiah for just a second and rewind to another prophet, a prophet named Jeremiah, who actually speaks about these events that are going to take place. Some of you maybe have recognized this or you're going to recognize this verse. It's a popular verse, but I want you to see it in its context. We're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 29, but starting in verse 10. Check this out. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. Let's go to the next verse. This is the one most of you know. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. More, you will, I will, verses of assurance, promises of what is yet to come. These verses come 70 years before the verse that we see in Isaiah chapter 55. And it's filled with all kinds of I will and you will statements, lots of assurance, motivators, drivers toward something new. Specifically, I will bring you home again. I will bring you home again. And then check this out. In Isaiah chapter 55, this is now the time. This is now the time. This is the opportunity where they get to come home. Now in Isaiah 55 is the good news. This is their opportunity to go home. And in fact, the king of Persia says, yeah, you can go. You can go. So why do they need a motivator? Doesn't this seem like, a, like an obvious decision? If, if even the king of Persia says, hey, we don't need you anymore. You, you can go back to your homeland. Doesn't that seem like an obvious enough decision for you and I to make if we're the people of God, if we're the Israelites? Oh, oh okay, yeah, I'll go home. Like that, I don't need a motivator to go. Why do these people need a motivator? Why, they need, why do they need to be driven to go? Why did they need to be convinced that God is going to do these things, that there will be new life? Why did they need a motivator? Because some of them, many of them, choose to stay. They stay in Babylon. What? Why? Why would you stay? I want you to think about this for just a second. They have been there for 70 years. 70 years. And, and if you think about what I said earlier, why do we need motivators? Well, we need motivators because sometimes we know that there's a change about to take place and we're going to have to do something hard and so we're afraid. Or we need a motivator because the thing that we're going to sounds too good to be true. So I don't know if I can believe that. I'm a little bit skeptical of that. So I can't move forward. This is the case for these people. They are about to do something hard. It's too familiar if, if they've been there their whole lives for 70 years, that's all they've ever known. So now you're asking me to go back home? I, it was never even home to begin with for most of them. It, it, it's familiar here. It's safe here. Even though they're in captivity, it's not unknown. At least it's predictable. And, and what, if, 
What if on the journey back home, what if, it's, what if it's dangerous? What if something happens to me? Or what happens if I get back and we just get attacked again by another empire because it's happened over and over in our history? No, this is, this is too dangerous. So, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stay here. Or think about this. Think if you're 80 years old as, a, as an Israelite, last time you were in Israel was, was 10 Do you even remember what it was like back then? Now you're here. It's familiar here. This isn't the first time this kind of behavior exists in the scriptures. We see this all the way back in the Exodus when the people of God are liberated out of Egypt where they had been for hundreds of years. They get into the wilderness. God is protecting for them. God is providing for them. And then some of them complain and say, you know what? I just wish we could just go back to Egypt. Because at least there we had meat. There were no vegans on this trip. Right? We can just go back there. It was easier there. It was familiar there. It was safe there. Sometimes we want to return to our captivity. What is that about? Well, because it's, it's harder to do the hard thing. Or, or maybe it's just too good to be true. You will live in joy and peace? Come on. Joy and peace? Don't joke with me. All I've ever known, God, is sorrow and despair and slavery and sadness. I don't even know what you mean when you say joy and peace. All I've ever endured is chaos. It's too good to be true. Apathetic. Let me pause for just a second and bring us into the story. How many of you can relate to this? This idea of God coming to you, or maybe uh, you have this sense that God is asking you to, to make a change, to do something new, and you're terrified because you know it's going to be hard. Or for some of you, you sense that God is calling you into something new, and the thing that he's calling you into, it almost sounds too good to be true, and you've never really experienced that level of goodness before, so you're just like, ah, I don't know about that. That doesn't really happen for me. That doesn't normally, that's not normally the case for me. And so you become apathetic and don't move anywhere. God gives them, through the prophet Isaiah, a motivator. And what's motivating them is new life. New life. He uses these uh, images in nature. He personifies nature. Mountains and hills will burst into song. Man, that's, that's cool. What, what would that be like? The trees of the field will clap their hands. He talks about the transformation that's happening from thorns to cypress trees. He's using biological, natural elements to point to new life, to point to something that's going to be greater. Well, that's, that's great, God, but... I don't know what those things are all about. I don't know what those things actually look like necessarily. I can maybe imagine them, but I can't fully grasp what that's like. Why? Because I mentioned earlier, they're in Babylon. They're in present-day Iraq. You and I, we became exposed to all kinds of images of Iraq in the first half uh, or the first part of the 21st century. What is it? Brown, dry, desolate, desert? These, this is where these people have been for many of them, all their life. That's all they've ever known. Now I'm getting images of mountains and hills and trees of the field, cypress trees. What, what is that like? It, it would be hard to comprehend 
I'm sure they have a, a question in their mind of, of, okay, that sounds great, but what does that actually look like? Think about the song that we sang. Could a garden come up from this ground at all? Sometimes you and I, we have this question about what God wants to do in us, and then we wonder, really? Is that, is that really even possible? Isaiah is painting a picture of a little bit of the impossible here. But it's not unimaginable. See, he talks about impossible things, things that they hadn't yet experienced, but they're still imaginable. Maybe they hadn't seen mountains and hills and and, and cypress trees, but they can still imagine that they exist. I want you to notice the care and the compassion of God as he speaks through the prophet Isaiah, giving them things that they might not necessarily fully understand, but they can still imagine, right? Here's the thing. It's not as though God speaks through Isaiah and gives them an impossible picture and an unimaginable picture of what is to come as he's speaking to these pre-modern ancient people, right? Like he's not telling them things that they're never going to experience. He's not telling them, hey, you're going to drive cars someday in Israel. Or, hey, guess what? You're going to talk on these little devices called phones. Or, hey, someday the Lions are going to win a game. Sorry, that wasn't, I didn't, that shouldn't have been in there. Sorry. No, it's not, like, it's not like God is messing with them in their state of vulnerability and weakness. He still talks about things that they can imagine. Can you imagine? Mountains and hills singing, cypress trees in place of thorns. He speaks about nature, things that they can see, things that they uh, maybe heard about from their older relatives that can remember these images that were passed down in stories, things they probably know exist, but they've just never seen. These images of nature can provide hope in the midst of their hopelessness, can't they? You and I know this too as well. Some of us, we, we feel a sense of there's something bigger than us, even if you're not a Christian, You feel a sense of bigness when you're in certain places in nature. Something is bigger than just you. How many of you, I'm just curious, raise your hand. How many of you are mountain people? Like you've been to the mountains before and you just are in awe of the bigness of the mountains. Yeah, how how many uh, forest people? You go into trees, especially this time of year. You get all of the beautiful colors and the creativity of creation. It's just amazing to look at as the sun is shining through these like autumn blaze maple trees. I love that. Or some of you uh, are big body of ocean or body of water people. How many of you love the ocean or, uh, or the Lake Michigan? Maybe not Lake Erie, maybe. I don't know. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. You just see this big expanse of water. It just goes on and on forever. And you're just like, man, there is something bigger than me. Some of y'all feel that way when you go to Costco and you see amazing sales. So we got to have a talk about that. But God uses this natural imagery to draw them to himself to see that there's something bigger and richer and deeper going on. This is what we call eschatology. And and this image isn't just in Isaiah. It's all throughout the scriptures. The the word eschatology, or I'm going to say eschatological, it's kind of a big fancy word, but it's this idea of the last 
things, things yet to come. Now, I don't want you to be confused by this. Some of you have heard this word eschatology before, and you're like, oh yeah, that's the study of the end times, end times. It's not entirely accurate. It's actually the study of the last things, which is subtly different. End times conjures up all of these images of rapture and burning and fire and brimstone and lakes of fire, and it's all kinds of images that induce fear and anxiety. And if so, if somebody is talking to you about eschatology, they're talking about end times, and they're bringing up all of these images to induce more fear and anxiety in you, it's not helpful. Because most of eschatology, most eschatological language is about the last things that take place to make room for the new things, the new beginning, the new creation, the things that drive us toward newness. Not more fear and anxiety, but hope and joy and peace. These are images, these are eschatological images of things, of new life that is going to be happening. It is happening in the present, but there's even more yet to come. See, the Christian life is filled with this constant remembering of what is happening or what Christ has done, but it serves a purpose to point to what is still to come. It's almost like a movie trailer. Some of you are sitting at home, you're on your couch, you're watching TV, and you see a movie trailer for a movie that you knew was about to come out. You weren't necessarily sure until now you see the movie trailer and you're like, okay, this is real. They filmed it. It's coming out in this month or around Christmas time or something. And so you start making plans to go see that movie. There's excitement. There's an anticipation there because you have seen a glimpse of what is yet to come. And then you actually go to the movie and you get the popcorn, you get the hot tamales, that's what I get anyway. And and you go and you get your soda and uh, when you're getting to be my age, you got to prepare to make extra trips to the bathroom during the movie, so you got to think about all of that. But like it's a whole experience, but then you actually go see the movie and you're getting excited because you remember what you saw in the trailer. And you have an idea of what is yet to come, but now... It's the full experience of the movie and there's a greater sense of joy and anticipation and excitement to see that movie. There's so much more at stake for you and I, people of God, for what Jesus has done and what he will do. Jesus is like the greatest movie trailer ever to come, ever to exist, his life and his mission is a trailer of what is yet to come, certainly for the early church, but then also for us, and then even more so for what's to come in the new creation, the new eschatological future. There is more to come. So how do we live into the more to come yet? Because we don't like waiting, do we? We don't like waiting, do we? No, No, we don't. (laughs) Some of you are like, no, I really do enjoy waiting. Okay. We don't like waiting. So we need something to keep us motivated. We need something to drive us forward. And especially the early church needed this picture as well. Right after Jesus' death and resurrection, we get the church in Rome, which is in the belly of the beast. Rome is a scary place to be if you're a Christian in the first century. And check out what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says this, Yet what we suffer... Now, we suffer. We are enduring suffering in the waiting. That doesn't doesn't sound good, does it? It doesn't sound 
like hope. It doesn't sound like joy and peace. It sounds like more of the same. It sounds like this same pattern of exile repeating itself all over again. It's the same as what the people of God endured in Babylon. Now, hundreds of years later, Rome is just Babylon remixed. It's the mixtape. It's just over and over again, the people of God continue to endure suffering. What kind of suffering? Intense persecution. Intense disease. Death. Oppression. It's the same pattern repeating itself what we suffer now. But it doesn't stop there. You know how the rest of the verse goes if you've grown up with these verses because they're powerful verses of hope. It doesn't just say, yet what we suffer now. It says, yet what we suffer now is nothing. It's nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Let's keep reading in verse 19. For all creation, David said it during our worship, all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Let's keep going again. It's against its will. All creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope. Creation looks forward, looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Amen? Amen. Amen. We are driven by new life, not by death and decay. That's not what motivates us. That's what keeps us in our shame. That's what keeps us in fear and in doubt and in skepticism. No, we need to be driven by new life, by the hope that is coming. New life is coming. Do you see this? this? These are echoes of what we see in Isaiah chapter 55, where new life is coming. There is an eschatological picture that is fulfilled in Jesus, but there is still more to come. There is more beyond. New life is coming. Hope is on the way. Where once there were thorns, where once there was abuse, where once there was cancer, where once there was racism and bigotry and injustice and lust and greed and pride, where once there was shame, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, the things that sting us, that surprise us, myrtles, a beautiful flower, will sprout up. I learned something about cypress trees and why they were such a a big deal to the people, the ancient people in the Old Testament. Cypress trees had an amazing ability to do a lot of different things. If there was ever a flood, cypress trees were great at absorbing all of that extra flood water and keeping the land healed and balanced. They also could trap air pollutants and keep those pollutants from spreading to other plants And on top of that, they were a breeding ground for all kinds of wildlife, frogs, birds, rodents, maybe some of the rodents we don't want, but still a breeding ground for what? More life. John talked about this last week. God's word goes out and it always produces fruit. We still here get this same image. There's more fruit. There's more life. And it's going to keep on coming. This is what drives us. This is what motivates us. This is why it's the most important code that we have. 
because we need new life to replicate itself, to multiply over and over. God will do these things. He will replace death and decay with new life. And if he's doing it in all creation, guess what? You are his creation. He's doing new life in you. There is hope for you. Yes, hope beyond death someday, but hope for right now as well. Church, how do we hope? How do we live in the waiting? How do we How do we live with this anticipation that hope is yet to come, but that hope can be now? Isaiah gives us that picture of a replacement that's taking place, a transformation that's taking place. He says, you will replace the thorns with cypress trees, the nettles with myrtles. What are the thorns and the nettles that you experience? The things that are prickly and pokey and stingy. What is that for you? I'm thinking about um, this plant imagery, this garden imagery. This last couple summers, we have planted a, just a real small garden for a couple fruits and vegetables for our family in our backyard. You know, some cucumbers and carrots and strawberries. And on a nice day, our kids would be running around in the backyard and playing around. And then every once in a while, they'd see this bright red strawberry. And they'd want to go in and, and, and pick it out and then eat it as they're, you know, having a little snack and then continuing their playing. But every once in a while, if I wasn't tending to the garden, guess what takes place? Thorny weeds. These, like, I think it's called milkweed. They're really thick and they hurt. They hurt. When you go in and you reach in, you're like, oh, that stings. And then it just stays in there too. And it's so small that you can't even get it out. So, so you just can't go in and get the strawberry. Well, sometimes my, my kids would go in and try to grab a strawberry, but their fingers would hit one of those thorns and then ah, they'd come in crying. Here's the thing. They need help. They need an outside source to come in. And not only that, it, it can't just be me, but I need, I need to put gloves on and protect myself with those, uh, from those little thorns so that I can go and pull the weed out. And now I've made space where I can go in and I can get a couple of strawberries and I can give them to my kids. Here's the thing. When I ask you, what are the thorns and the nettles in your lives? Some of you are like, I've got some impossible thorns and nettles. Too many. It would take way too long to go through all of the thorns and the nettles in my life. There is no shame for the amount of time that it might take to get in there and to pull those out. There is no shame in asking for somebody else to help. In fact, you might need someone else to go through this replacement process, this transformation process, to get somebody to come alongside you, to put some gloves on, to take some time to get in there, to get their hands dirty, to get in there and pull those thorns, those nettles out of there. Why? Just so that it can be bare and empty? No, so that it can make room for more growth, more new life. Those bright red strawberries, they stick out in the garden and they look amazing and they taste even better. New life in us tastes good to the community around us. Are you tasty? That's a weird thing to say, but think about it in context. 
I want new life to go beyond us. I want to be driven by it, but I want it to go beyond just me. Sometimes the thorns and the nettles, it's hard to get out, but sometimes it's just a matter of waiting and it takes time and it's hard to see it. And it's hard, as we talked about at the beginning, it's hard to know the future and it's hard to live in the unknowns of the future. And so it can paralyze us in our waiting. But I actually think we're better at telling the future than we realize. It has to do with music that unlocks something in us. What am I talking about? All throughout this series, uh, not just this year, but uh, multiple years, uh, Pastor Nathan has talked about this idea of a song. A song is being sung over us. He got it from Zephaniah 317, that God will rejoice over us with singing. What must that song sound like? But then he talks about our code and our church, and our, our code is sort of our way of contributing to that song and adding to the harmony. It's this beautiful sort of poetic imagery of what's going on. But some of you are like, okay, that's great. That sounds good. I don't really know what that means. I'm not all that musical. You don't actually want me singing. And I, I understand that. So maybe I'm not sure that I should add my voice to the song. But here's what I want to do. I want to try something, and I need your participation. All I'm going to tell you is I need you to finish when I'm done. Okay? Here we go. La, 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 la. How'd you do that? How did you do that? You, fifth, fifth grade. Okay. You, you learned it in fifth grade. That's a start. Yes. How did you know what notes to sing? How did you know to sing that many notes? Nobody sang an extra note. La! You know, like that didn't come out anywhere. You all sang the same notes and you all sang the same amount of notes. How is that possible? Guess what? Your brains, neurologically, you are actually wired to tell the future, musically speaking. You, you're actually hardwired to anticipate what is to come musically. You have that ability whether you know it or not. And here's the cool thing. Some of you are like, no, I'm, I'm not a singer. I'm not a good singer. I'm tone deaf. But you, you gave it a go anyway. And what you may not have noticed is what you did is you actually listen. Your brain is trained to do this. Listen to the voices around you and you adjusted your notes based on the notes that you were singing or on the notes that were being sung around you. And then you knew how many notes to sing. Here's what's even cooler. It was more possible because you were doing it in unison. You were doing it in community. You weren't alone when you were singing. You did this. All of this was made possible because you did this together. You're better together, not alone. You belong is not just about you, but it's about those sitting around you. Because there's power in community. There's power in singing a song together. Singing in unison, in unity. Listening to each other's voice. And then knowing what the future holds. There is power in being able to endure whatever the future holds when you are doing it in unison and in community. Amen? 
Amen. So let's stop doing this on our own. Let's sing this song. And isn't it cool that Isaiah gives us the imagery of a song? You will live in joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song. The fields, the trees of the field will clap their hands. All creation is participating in a praise and worship service. Are you going to join in? Are you motivated? Are you driven by new life? Are you willing to sing this song? Because here's the thing. Even if you don't sing, Jesus said the rocks will soon cry out. God doesn't even need you to join the song. He wants you to join the song, but he doesn't need you because all of creation is going to sing this song. They can't help but sing this song. All creation is motivated to sing this song. We sang it earlier. Out of chaos, life is being found in you. And if the stars were made to worship, so will I, you were made to worship God. And it's what drives us. It's what motivates us. And there is a result that comes from it. Check out verse 13. These events will, will bring great honor to the Lord's name. He will receive glory when we worship, when we are doing what we were made to do. The code and the commitment attached to this code is worship and giving God glory. It's this specifically, I will prioritize the weekly gathering with my church community to worship God, to do this in unison with each other, to build each other up. When I am weak, I've got somebody standing next to me who can sing the song for me. I've got somebody next to me who will give God glory for me so that I can then join in even in my state of brokenness. Coming together, singing together. There is great unity. There is great power in joining together and giving honor to the Lord's name, giving him glory. Why? Because he's needy? Because he's some whiny toddler that needs affirmation? Because he's insecure? No, because look at the very next part of the verse. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and his love. This is out of his love for you. He wants to show you his love. He wants to invite you into his love. It always comes back to his power and his love that we experience this together in community. And guess what? It's cyclical. It just keeps on going. When we are driven by new life, when we worship together, when we give God glory, it's infectious. And it goes right back to the other codes. Driven by new life is the foundation for us to experience belonging, for us to encounter Jesus. And then it feeds into a relentless pursuit of one more because we simply cannot help ourselves. And then we're willing to do whatever it takes and go wherever it takes us. And that multiplies. And then it just keeps on happening. Are you driven by new life, church? I hope you are. I hope we are as a community. Think about the scale that you sang. You sang it because others were singing it with you. There was maybe some hesitancy in your voice. Maybe you weren't sure if you were singing the right note. Maybe you didn't know where this was all going. But then when you joined in with those that were sitting next to you, 
or even for those of you who tried it online, and you maybe heard us singing here, you took a risk. You stepped out. What's going to motivate you to experience new life? Some of you need a motivator. Some of you are desperate for hope because you look at your situation and all you see is brokenness and hopelessness. All you see are nettles and thorns. You can't even see if there's a piece of fruit in the garden because it's so covered up with thorny bushes. So why even try reach in there? It's too painful. It's because you're not doing this alone. Church, we need to be together regularly to worship, to give God glory, but to lift each other up in the midst of our brokenness. If you're that person who needs hope in your hopelessness, if you need to be driven by new life, I want you to pray along with me and experience new life. Would you do something maybe uncomfortable? Would you put your hands out? We do this from time to time to signify a posture to God, but also ultimately to our hearts, to ourselves, to say, I'm willing. I'm willing to be driven. I'm willing to be motivated. Father, we want new life. We want transformation. We need new life and transformation. I don't know what that all looks like. I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future And so I'm calling on you, Jesus. The power of your Holy Spirit to help me to see a way forward, to give me hope, to guide me. And God, I pray that as I surround myself in this community, that I would experience your love, your grace, your mercy. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that message. Uh, like Pastor Jared said, uh, we are a church that is motivated by looking forward to what God is doing now and will do in the future. And he's up to so much uh, in our church. And one of the ways you can participate in that is by giving. Giving to support the mission of God at this church and what he's up to. So head on over to our Life Church Canton forward slash give page. Or you can also use that uh, church center app to give uh, either recurrently or just to give a uh, uh, your first give for your first time. Um, but either way. God is up to so much, and we're looking forward to the ways that we get to partner with what he's doing. Uh, Also, if you need anything, prayer requests, or any other needs, feel free to reach out. We want to uh, pray with you and do our best to serve some of those needs, so feel free to reach out to someone on staff or someone in our congregation. Uh, We'd love for you to do that. Um, But I hope that 
this week, you have a blessed week. You uh, find hope and joy in the things that God is up to and that the things that God will do in the future uh, in his community and in his church. So have a great week, and I'll talk to you real soon. Bye.